Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. Data is one of the most valuable commodities of the 21st century. It permeates so many interactions. It influences so many of our decisions, whether we're aware of it or not. Our own data footprints are being collected at an unprecedented level and thus has come the demand for global reform and regulation. The ethics of data privacy is still a divisive argument, but it's clear that the likes of Silicon Valley have fallen out of public favour recently and that big tech is having to rethink how they manage, utilise and remain transparent on data usage to remain sustainable and profitable. In this special bonus episode of The Corporate Innovator, we will hear a recent keynote on data and ethics that was held at Silicon Block 11 in Melbourne in November 2019. This is a fascinating topic where the game is changing every single day. Founder of Silicon Block, Reese Hayes, brought three varied and highly informed experts to the discussion to break it down. From revealing the bias of algorithms to the accountability of AI, this episode covers all the key data points and more. Let's listen to what they've got to say. All new technologies, when you first experience them, tend to feel a little bit like magic. I remember when I was sitting uh, for the first time on the other side of the planet, and I was in San Francisco, and and I was in a bar, and I had a a Motorola at the time, and uh, it was the first time I experienced global roaming, and my mobile phone rang, and it felt at that minute like the world just shrunk. More recently, these magical experiences have become so much more personal. Like, remember the first time you unlocked your phone by looking at it, or the first time uh, you shazammed a song. But the line between magic and the potential for something more sinister seems to be blurring all the time. Like when Google Maps just suddenly told you to take 15 minutes to get home, even though you never told Google where you lived. Or perhaps most commonly for all of us, uh, the first time we've been retargeted cross-platform, when that ad appears on Insta for that product you looked at after you searched for it on Google uh, and then visited Facebook. Uh, Of course, many of these personal experiences are trade-offs between convenience and privacy, and at the heart of all that magic is our data. With over 80% of the world's data having been generated in just the last 12 months, citizens, institutions, startups, and governments are racing to exploit, protect, and innovate at breakneck speed. With parallel advancements in machine learning, AI, quantum computing, the data-fueled future is both filled with potential and fraught with potential pitfalls. Joining me to help unpack this complex topic are three exceptional experts. If I could first welcome Lizzie O'Shea. Lizzie is a lawyer, writer and broadcaster. Her commentary is featured regularly on national television programs and radio. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Sydney Morning Herald, amongst others. (laughs) She is the founder and board member, thank you Lizzie, (laughs) of Digital Rights Watch, which advocates for human rights online and sits on the board of the National Justice Project, Blueprint for Free Speech, and the Alliance for Gambling Reform. And if all that isn't enough, she's also a recent author, having published her book, Future Histories. Welcome, Lizzie. Thank you so much for joining us. Next up, I'd like to invite James Wilson to the stage. James spent over a decade working in digital transformation at REA Group, Tabcorp, Telstra, and NAB. Today, James is the CEO of ELISA, a groundbreaking consultancy working with leading organisations to ideate, build and scale artificial intelligence. James is perhaps best known to a wider audience as the co-host of podcast AI Australia. Thanks for joining us, James. 
And finally, Lee Barnes. Uh, Lee is the Chief Purpose Officer of the Intrepid Group, uh, the world's largest provider of adventure travel experiences and a proud Melbourne company as well. The Chief Purpose Officer role is a new position championed by Intrepid Group CEO James Thornton, which was created to focus on sustained growth in the company's purpose initiatives. Welcome to you all. Thank you very much. Um, we'll dive straight in, Lee. As an ethically and purpose-driven uh, brand, how does Intrepid navigate uh, the challenges presented in a hyper-competitive category increasingly powered by technology and innovation? Of course, by which I mean uh, you are very much squarely in travel. It has been uh, the heart and soul of technology innovation for the last 20 years. Yeah, sometimes really good, sometimes uh, a little bit shite. Um, depends <laughs> depends on uh, what, what topic and what, what you're catching on. I think for us and how we've tackled it, very clear our impact as a, as a travel company is to be the best travel company for the world. Um, and that really changes how you think about things. Most other organisations and their target is to be the biggest, the fastest growing. We're really trying to ensure that we are the best for. Yep. And because of that, it really changes how you come and tackle problems. Obviously, we want to grow. You know, we think growth is important, but that really helps fuel our purpose. So the more we grow, the more we're able to spend in, you know, uh, we've just invested in a seaweed uh, project off the coast of uh, Tasmania that helps draw down carbon. But if we were just going after growth, we would never look at a technology like that. Yeah. The fact that we know that we're a travel company, we know that we're contributing, unfortunately, to the current climate crisis with how much we are growing, we then have to look at technology not just on how we grow more, but look at technology and different innovations on how we can be the best travel company for the world. Yeah. So because of that and that reframing, we've then decided, hey, you know, we need to do more around climate. We've looked at different technologies. We've seen that you know, seaweed's one of the fastest growing um, plants in the world. It draws down massive amounts of carbon. And we're setting up a, a program down there to help balance our thing. So it's just reframing how we look at the, what we do. So it's easy to believe you with your title and conviction and, and mandate, but do you believe that those values extend through decision-making across the business, knowing now that Intrepid, as we just said before, is no longer based here, but is now a global business? Yeah, and it gets harder. Like we're now, uh, what we've gone from a couple of houses in Fitzroy, just 10 years ago to now having uh, offices in 40 different locations, Marrakesh, Toronto, Myanmar. So it gets harder. Yeah. yeah it actually gets harder and we've gone from probably, what, a couple hundred employees to almost 2,000. Yeah. So how you then put that discipline and thinking across everyone's yeah. jobs and remits, it, gets, it does get harder. Yeah. But I think how we've tried to do it is set up a strong set of values, have that leadership, you know, we want to be the best travel company for the world, and then staff just start doing stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, like, we, we banned elephant rides about 10 years ago, and that came from our staff. Yeah. You know, they said, wow. look, riding elephants is not the right thing to be doing. Yeah, we shouldn't be um, riding elephants, because the, the breakthrough, the breaking down process to get them um, tame is absolutely horrific. Yeah. And our staff actually presented That's that as a solution. Recently, we've set ourselves a goal to be climate positive. Our staff actually came and said, hey, the finance team said, hey, look, our long-term and short-term deposits are actually going to fuel investments that could be mining, that could be cigarettes, it could be all these other things that we aren't sure of. They pitched that, and then now we've moved right. our term deposits to be only for green buildings. You know, So those things are coming from staff. So you try and set a good value base. You try and empower your staff to go ahead. Yeah, there's gaps, and we don't get everything right, and we make some mistakes, but it's creating a clear framework, a purpose, a set of values, and then let your staff get on with it. That's awesome. Lizzie, it feels like... I feel like I trust... Intrepid. <laughs> I'm actually have been an intrepid customer as well. But in this rapidly evolving world of uh, data, AI, and machine learning, in your view, who should we be more afraid of? Um, the dark web and criminals, 
private enterprise or government? I think that's a really good question. <laughs> so it's hard to pick between three. Uh, so the first thing I would say is, of course, we need to be worried about criminal behaviour. It's a common feature in human society. We've got to find a way to manage it, of course. And so we need digital security. And it's part of the reason why I campaigned against the recent reforms to encryption, uh, the, the encryption legislation, the recent reforms that allows government to break encryption. Uh, but what I would say is, I think what we should be afraid of is power without accountability. And in the digital age, government is a source of power with that accountability. They collect a lot of data. They use it in all sorts of ways uh, without consulting people and often without complying with the law until someone holds them accountable for it. And it's not just programs of welfare or other service delivery. It's m more serious than that. I think it's policing. It's things like um, the use of lethal weaponry. So, you know, the, head of, the former head of the CIA talked about how they kill people using metadata. So they are holders of data and they use that to uh, fuel programs like the lethal drone program that's being used to the Middle East, for example, we should be sceptical of government when it asks for more data without accountability. Having said that, the other key source of power without accountability, in my view, is industry. Mm. Uh, too often, industry doesn't consult users, has a default assumption of collecting more data is better for them, therefore better for everyone. There's a lot of good intentions uh, that seem to be paving a path towards hell. Uh, many major technology companies now cooperate with uh, military companies, military technology companies, militaries themselves. Themselves. I mean, Microsoft has been involved in delivering research papers with the Chinese military university. Amazon has been uh, selling its facial recognition technology to various government departments to do all sorts of oppressive things. And I think that if you're a company, you should be thinking very carefully about the kind of power you have and whether you're prepared to use it responsibly, whether you're prepared to collaborate with governments who are doing terrible things, or whether you're going to take responsibility for some of these potential negative consequences and prepare for them. What if I was to put to you that boards and executives under a significant amount of pressure, and there's usually a perception, certainly in the organisations that we deal with, that we're one step behind. But most organisations we're looking at, you look at the retail sector, they're looking at Amazon and contemplating the power of the data that they have, that, they, that, the, argue, that the pressure to feel like there's a need to catch up on the data front is overwhelming. That There's a view that whilst what you're saying may well be true, but there is a, a virtually an obligation by company leaders to catch up on data. Well, personally, I'm, I'm not obviously an entrepreneur. I'm not involved in industry. Um, but what I would say is I think this industry is unsustainable. I think you will need to build a company in future that has a social license to collect and use data. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think that's true, I think you are a step behind. People may not realise, but it wasn't that long ago that the Democrats in the United States, for example, were deeply in love with Silicon Valley that had uh, huge influence over how they made policy. And now we have a front runner for president who is talking about breaking up big technology platforms. We also have uh, widespread uh, discontent with how these companies operate. And it's mainly because it's seen as an extractive industry that has paid little attention to the social consequences of their business practices. Yeah. I think if you want to be on the front foot, then what you'd be doing is building a sustainable business that has a social license to operate, that is prepared for the regulation that will come. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg thinks regulation is coming. That's yeah. why he's writing op-eds in the Washington Post to talk about why he wants to write the rules. I'm not sure that, that he's 
dream is going to come true in that way. But I think any company who doesn't think regulation is coming in this space is mistaken. And then yeah. you are on the back foot and you'll be behind when the rules do change. James, an adjacent question. The media is filled with F-ups uh, in this area at the moment. Do you Very think that companies are entering into the use uh, of data and AI somewhat naively, by which I mean perhaps ignoring the importance of human intervention? So this is a, more, a little more of a practical question. And that's what's leading to outcomes like Apple's significantly embarrassing um, sexist credit card, I think the disastrous Centrelink robo debt crisis. Yeah, I think both of those examples um, highlight you know, some very different but real kind of problems in this space. So Apple Credit Card launched in, in August in the US, and uh, in the last couple of weeks there's been a whole growth of all these stories hitting the media where women are being offered much lo lower credit than men on this credit, on, on this credit card. And it was actually raised by the founder of Basecamp who, who wrote a very long Twitter feed about this saying, yeah, my wife got offered like $6,000 less credit than I did. Apple's response immediately was, um, it was quite clear that they didn't really understand how this algorithm worked. And it, it immediately raises this question of, of transparency and recourse. So Goldman Sachs are the card issuer for Apple Credit Card, and they've, they've gone out there and said, we, we absolutely don't use um, you know, gender as an input for our algorithm. And that raises a whole bunch of other questions, which is you, know, you can still be inferring that without actually explicitly calling out in your model. And I think what this raises is you know, transparency, like who actually understands how these algorithms work, and, and recourse. So as a, as a customer or as a user of these systems, what kind of recourse do you have if you feel that you've been treated un unfairly? And I think organizations are getting into these things often with the right intention, but they're missing the unintended consequences. And I think as an organization going down this path, yeah, you're probably going in thinking we're not going to be evil, but there's a whole bunch of unintended consequences that we really need to map out and understand who's going to use this, how do we test it with them, how do we ensure that we're figuring these things out before we put it out into the wild. Now, the robo-debt crisis, I think, highlights a different issue, which is uh, human in the loop. And we were chatting about this just before, before we came in, but Ellen Broad, who's an Australian, wrote a fantastic book, The Human Condition, um, about AI systems, and she, she delved into the robo-debt crisis quite a lot. And it, interesting enough, robo-debt didn't introduce this whole new algorithm for the way that they would issue debt notices. In 2016, they introduced a change to the system, which basically meant the algorithm was the same, but previously a human being would call someone up and go, we've mm -hmm. looked at your data and we think you have a debt. And they would, the person would say, well, yes, but I can't track back my pay slips to prove it. And it was, the onus was on Centrelink then to call the employer and actually go and get those pay slips. But what happened with RoboDebt is they took the human out of the loop and they pushed the onus back on the person who has issued the debt to then go and prove that, that they didn't deserve it. Now, if you think about all of you in the room, if you got one of these debts through from Centrelink, you know, you could probably take some time off work. You could work from home for a day and pick up the phone and call them, or you could get your spouse to help you, or you could tap into your network. You know, you imagine someone working three jobs just to stay above the poverty line, or someone who, you know, who has you know, some form of, of disability that might prevent them from even understanding this letter, how are they gonna respond? So mm -hmm. it, it really is, taking the human out of the loop really takes this risk that you're gonna you know, punish some of the more at-risk people in society. Lee, I wanted to, not everybody gets to work at a company uh, like Intrepid, and I, and I mean this sincerely, that... I'm very lucky, yeah. You, you are very lucky. But in the sense that the, the, the company is very clear its purpose above profit. There's a big trend towards this, and there is even an argument that organisations that put purpose above profit ultimately end up more profitable yeah. in the long run. For individuals that, that might be here in the room that today may not work with a company as evolved as Intrepid, 
Do you have any advice or thoughts around... The premise to this is that every one of these decisions ultimately starts with a human. We think about it being corporate policy, but ultimately somebody has KPIs, they need to reach a target, they need to get something done. They may not work in an environment that clearly and has a directive from the top down saying, no, don't do it. Do you have any advice for anyone caught up in an environment like that? Um, well, I did. I was similarly this person at 28. I know I probably only look 28. Um, but about 10 years ago, I was uh, in a call centre job, uh, doing business development, totally different career, etc. And uh, the values didn't line, so I quit. So that's one option. Probably, uh, that's not maybe the preferred option for everyone, but that is one um, that, that you can take. The other, I think, is the important role that we all play on making change happen through the inside. Yeah, and while you're there being able to influence change within a business, I know that can be hard and, and daunting, but I think that businesses have a lot of structure, a lot of constraints, a lot of incentives that create different behaviours. Mm. But you know, you as a person have a set of values that will carry over from home to work, and I think it's important for you to champion certain things you'd want to see change within your business. And if you don't do that, or if, if other people don't do that, we don't see change. Yeah. And we don't see cool, interesting happen, things happen at companies. So, yeah, I think there's two options. The hard line, you can quit if, if you want to. The, the other thing... Which be I think, the change you yeah, want to be. The other one is be the change. You actually start, because someone else in your business will be looking up to you. Yeah, and I think that will be important if you start to do that. And other people, too, I find more and more in business, they don't know what they don't know, and, and in life. So take that moment to be a champion internally, and you can make some uh, cool changes happen. Um, if right. not, then... Yeah, take the second, the first option. James. Yeah, I, I think another thing to consider is um, I think the tide is turning, the public perception, as you just touched on, towards tech is changing. And many of you will remember the Volkswagen emissions scandal a couple of years ago in the US, yeah. where you know Volkswagen effectively wrote some software that would you know cheat emissions testing in the US. And when that really first came out and the inquiry started, the first person who went to jail from the inquiry was the software engineer that wrote the code. Yeah. It wasn't the executive, it wasn't the CEO, it wasn't anyone else. But I think, and he was given a pretty huge fine based on where he could have been fined, it was at the top end, and his prison sentence was at the, the higher end of the spectrum. And I think people are calling out that, you know, you can't just stand back now and go, well, someone told me to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we talk to engineers a lot and we say, hey, the tide is changing and you are now going to be held accountable for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk, well, I mentioned before, uh, there's a great book to read if you're looking at data and ethics called Ruined by Design. And he really, well, he takes an absolute sledgehammer to Twitter and Facebook, but speaks quite a lot to that about your responsibility to make ethical decisions in every part of the chain in business. Mm -hmm. So whether you're at the top, the bottom, you have a responsibility as a person to make ethical decisions. And I think that's quite a thing that we're seeing changing quite dramatically and pretty fast. Mm -hmm. I think that wasn't in the conversation, I'd say, 12, 18 months ago. And I think it's something we're seeing happen pretty quick. So yeah, I'd agree. Well, yeah. the other thing I would add is that a lot of the interesting developments that we've seen recently come out of Silicon Valley in relation to thinking about these issues have actually come from people who work in the company. So people organizing their workplaces, it's a very 19th century thing to do, but I actually think it holds very much significant, a lot of significance in the 21st, to campaign to get their companies to behave better. And workers have a specific role to play. They know how the company works. They know what inefficiencies exist. I think if you're leading a company and you don't have very clear ways in which you can consult with your employees to get that feedback, then you're making a mistake. You're missing an enormous asset of goodwill, of um, productivity that can come from that. Mm. And I also think workers have a very significant role to play in holding companies to higher standards, not just the one of profitability, but also to hold them to standards of what's acceptable in terms of fairness, in terms of non-discrimination, in terms of doing the right thing when you're presented with a particular conundrum. So 
that's, I think, the other source of key power in which we can start to shift some of these questions. Speaking of the conundrum and, and speaking of great books on the topic, <laughs> um, in your book... Very good segue. segue. <laughs> it's very smooth. No, but it, 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 in all seriousness, and, it, and, it and it's a fascinating read, in your book, Future Histories, you argue that we should be effectively looking back uh, in order to look forward. Um, we spend a lot of time contemplating what these ethical dilemmas and uh, you present some evidence that perhaps we should be looking back at the same time. I think in some ways that's challenging as a concept given that there is you know, ar arguably a surveillance state or uh, some of these uh, big data issues feel like they're unreferenceable. Yeah, well, that's kind of my claim, that they're not, that if we think about some of the um, experiences we've had in the past, social movements and thinkers who've thought about social issues, we can see how some of these debates have actually ha been had in many different ways before. And so you talk about surveillance, like, to understand the surveillance state, for example, I go back and look at the origins of modern policing and how surveillance was deployed on the River Thames to develop the first modern police force that was watching workers to make sure they did their job. And this was the beginning of, of understanding surveillance as a very effective cheap tool to manage social divisions and that's what we've seen as time has gone on but probably ones that I think are most relevant particularly to this discussion is I have a chapter where I talk about design and um, how we can make sure that design uh, encompasses the interests of users and the example I use is uh, what lots of lawyers of which I'm one learn about in law school which is the Ford Pinto crisis in which you may know about this but Ford produced a car in, in the 60s and 70s which uh, had a fault in the design whereby if it was rear-end ended at a relatively low speed, the whole thing would explode in flames. And the engineers had a choice whether to insert a plastic buffer between the fuel tank and the bumper bar to prevent this. And the car was rushed to market uh, because there was a calculation that it would be more cost effective to get the car to market and sell it and pay the consequences in the form of compensation payments to people who may have died. And when this was revealed, it was considered very scandalous. It was an example for lawyers about how companies are incentivised sometimes to do the wrong thing. And what do we need to do about that? We need to create better laws, we need to create better safety standards. But also, my argument there is consumer advocates worked really hard to change the dynamic of this conversation, to stop the industry blaming individual drivers like the industry tends to do with blaming individual users for misusing technology and instead start to take responsibility from a design perspective, so designing cars to be safer. And that's not an insignificant thing. Uh, I was looking back at a retrospective of Ralph Nader, um, who, is, who ran for president actually in the United States, but he's better known as being a consumer advocate lawyer. He was leading this charge and uh, he um, developed a bunch of proposals including the introduction of seatbelts and other kinds of safety features. And I saw a retrospective recently that suggested that when he published this book, which advocated for this in the late 60s, up until now, that there's about three and a half million people whose lives were saved as a result of those reforms. So when consumer advocates do work, they can be very effective, they can highlight the deficiencies in design and argue for regulations that take the decision making out of the hands of the individual engineer who might feel under pressure and say, no, actually, this company's not allowed to operate in this way. At the top level, you need to be compliant with safety regulations, you need to think about your users, you need to not move fast and break things, but actually test stuff before you release it onto the market, yeah. not treat your users as guinea pigs, and actually take a responsible approach to design. And I think that's where we might be, we might be at the beginning of the Ford Pinto crisis for tech, yeah. where we are starting to see the terrible consequences of too much data collection without proper regulation, mm. and we're going to start, there's, people will start campaigning to change that. Related question, James. 
Do you believe that algorithms that interpret human behaviour and therefore can significantly influence our behaviour should remain the IP and the proprietary knowledge of corporations and therefore opaque and secretive? I mean, you can be transparent without giving away your IP. So yeah. I think a lot of organisations are trying to hide behind this rather than just being responsible and doing the right thing. So, for example, you can have a very clear path of recourse to your users to say, if you feel you've been mistreated, then this is what you need to do. You can be very transparent around how you've engaged external experts and peer-reviewed the process you've gone through. Um, you know, if you're in, in Melbourne and you are building a product that's powered by, by AI, you think about Melbourne University, you think about the, the academic capability in Melbourne that you can tap into, who are, you know, people like Professor Tim Miller at Melbourne Uni, who we do a lot of work with, who's, you know, a global leader on explainable AI, which is how do we make these systems easy to understand how they've reached a decision. There's incredible people around that you can tap into, and being transparent about things like that should, doesn't in any way prevent you from keeping your IP. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting topic because for one example is, for example, proprietary technology that's used in court processes to determine DNA evidence or um, parole. There's a, a famous program that's been mm. used in the US to determine parole applications to give guidance to judges making that decision, which was found to be racist. Yep. And what you'd normally do in a court situation if you had an expert like that is you'd cross-examine the expert. And I think that's probably what we need, the capacity to cross-examine these programs. And if you can't answer those questions, maybe you shouldn't be deploying this technology? Absolutely, and I mean, we started off with AI with you know, Amazon recommending us a book or Netflix recommending us a movie, and if it recommends you a, a movie that you don't like this weekend, you know, life's not going to end, it's okay, you'll pick something else. But when we start using this technology to make decisions on should I qualify for welfare or should I be given parole, it's a completely different ballgame, and you know, the level of transparency we need and the level of explainability and accountability obviously goes up with that. So the marketplace is now global, with global operations, but the world seems to be fragmenting on the rules of using customer data. Uh, EU regulations, GDPR, China state-managed, US market-based, Australia's at the crossroads of policy. Do you adapt? or do you create different policies for different areas? So if you're a global company with global operations, do you create a universal data policy or do you adapt to the different regions? So, I, so I, this is being faced by, say, um, Microsoft and Google having a different strategy in China, in Europe, and in the US on their data policy. I suppose I can speak as uh, for Intrepid. We take the best absolute standard and apply that across all regions. So you can be a lot more robust and a lot more aggressive in the USA with the data. It's a bit more uh, Wild West, where Europe obviously, um, with GDPR and a bunch of other things happening, are a lot stricter. We've made the decision to make our standard the best possible across all those regions. Some of the marketers in the US weren't particularly happy uh, with some of those decisions. We're taking the competitive advantage that by being the best travel company for the world, people will decide to travel with us. Yeah, and the fact that we look after their data when we're doing above and beyond what our competitors are doing, that puts us in a better light. And again, we don't get it all right all the time, but we're really trying to have that bar. And we think that because we do that, that it sets us apart and creates a different competitive advantage. Yeah, so it depends where you create that value. We don't allow uh, trading in human body parts, yet when you look at the surveillance industry, we are creating an ability to trade in human futures, in the behaviours that they're manipulating, not behaviours that happen that they want to capitalise upon, but they're using the network to create and motivate those behaviours. So I'm thinking about the extension of Pokemon Go and those sort of things. 
Do you think that we ought to contemplate banning the marketplace for human futures? That's such a great question. I think that you're right. Part of what perhaps underpins this question, if I can be so bold, is that a contractual understanding of privacy, I think, is largely useless in the 21st century. Uh, so suggesting that anyone has agency to tick a consent box to a lengthy term, set of terms and conditions is somewhat ridiculous. So um, I don't think our regulations have caught up with that, but I think it's only a matter of time before they do. I think one of the proposals will be to prohibit the secondary use of data. If you can't effectively anonymise data, which it looks increasingly difficult to do, and there are bigger implications because, of course, even if you shared nothing, what someone can learn about a lookalike audience to you allows them to infer things about you. So the idea that it's a, a, a consent that can be given individually when, in fact, it affects the collective is problematic. So for those two reasons, I don't think it's sustainable to have a secondary data market that works in that way. And I think we will see moves towards prohibition. I was at an event last night where I was talking to... I asked a question of the um, Victorian Data and Information Commissioner, and I proposed this, and he didn't object to it. I mean, he sort of thinks along similar lines, that this is not sustainable. So if you're in that market... I think you should be thinking about getting up or reforming it and making it responsible uh, mm. because it's just unrealistic to say that people somehow consent to this when it's not at all what is reflected in their expectations. And the idea that people don't care about their privacy and they're prepared to give it up for convenience I think is a false dichotomy. It's not true. And if you ask anybody in the real world, you survey them and you do it properly, then you'll find that to be the case. So that disconnect is going to resolve somehow politically soon and I don't think it's going to resolve in favour of people who trade in large volumes of data. And I think we've seen, I, think it was, I can't remember if it was Virginia, but one of the states in the US this year introduced a, a pretty sweeping regulation of data brokers and the data reselling market, forcing all data brokers over a certain size to register, putting them through a whole bunch more compliance work. You know, we've already seen the city of San Francisco, first city in the world to ban the use of facial recognition technology for mm. law enforcement. Obviously, that's at a city level, not a federal level. And we've seen a few cities, I think, have followed on from that. So I think this is going to continue. I think this is the beginning of a regulatory push. I mean, GDPR is a great example that, you know, GDPR gives European citizens the right to an explanation made by an autonomous system. So you have the right to put your hand up and say, I want to see how you've reached that decision. And you have the right to opt out of that decision as well. I'd love to hear your opinion on how enforceable some of this stuff is, because we're seeing fines, but I still question how enforceable this will be. But I do think it's a massive step in the right direction. To continue on that, what, what uh, and I might actually direct this at you, Lizzie, your views on Australia's approach. We're coming in behind Europe, but we're coming in fast, open banking, February 2020, although uh, whether we make it or not, banks are uh, supposed to be able to enable us to share our data. Maybe a little bit trickier for us to actually get hold of our data, but share our data. Views for anyone on the panel on what you're seeing forming uh, in terms of the Australian regulatory system? Well, I've lobbied politicians on technology legislation and I found that either they don't understand it or the people that do have been lobbied very effectively by a small coterie of interested parties and that doesn't include civil society most of the time. Uh, so I often feel like I'm up against it and even bills that don't make sense for a variety of technological reasons economic reasons, the encryption legislation being an obvious example for security reasons, the law gets through. However, I am trying to build a movement with many other people to hold decision makers accountable and lawmakers accountable when they make those calls and we think they're wrong. And I think we've got good grounds to start doing that. The GDPR sets 
something of a high standard for us to push towards, and there's clear economic interest as to why Australia should follow that path so that it becomes easier to do business with Europe, for example. That, in fact, we should all be like Intrepid, finding the highest standard and then complying with it. So I do think it's going to come. It will be a hard push. But I increasingly think that the forces that will hold lawmakers accountable for this are growing, and the public support is there for change. We've explored a lot how data can be used in more sinister ways, I guess. And um, whilst this is a question for everyone, I'm quite interested in Lee's answer. I'll be transparent, I'm a tourism researcher. So (laughs) I'm wondering how you see data being used for good. Yeah, Yeah. cool, so got two good examples of that. Rewind a little bit, we became a B Corp about 18 months ago. So B Corp is a framework and an audit and a stamp that says we're a business that uses our business for a force of good, force for good. And then we create value beyond just financial value for the different stakeholders, whether it's the planet, whether it's our community, whether it's our workers. And through that process, we discovered two points in our business that we were not using data for positive impact. One was over tourism and one was how we could make our product better. So two parts of that where we weren't using data enough to say, hey, we're actually going to Haolong Bay too often and we are contributing to the over-tourism problem. We need to reduce that and we need to look at where we can take people to have an authentic experience that's not negatively impact on the community. Yep, so one thing we've made the change over the last 18 months is now really looking at specific. So before we're looking a lot more at country data, we've broken that down now to much smaller community-led data to say, hey, we are going to Chinookville too many times. We're actually contributing to this problem. How can we flip this and use the data to fight under tourism where communities aren't getting the money they need and start to use our data to go to new communities. Yep, so that's one change we've made over the last 18 months off the back of B Corp because we didn't score particularly well in some of our community engagement when we were travelling because we were causing a negative impact by how often we were travelling to a certain place. The flip side too, and one thing that we're starting to do and look at data, and this one where we've had some pretty interesting board uh, of management level arguments uh, on this one, and this also has a dark side implication as well, is understanding if a customer comes back and thinks they're healthier after a trip. Mm. So we would imply that if someone's come back after trekking Kilimanjaro, they're healthier, which would be good. We would build in more trekking components to our trips because healthier equals happiness. But what if we decided to do something bad with that information around people who are unhealthy, but we sell more unhealthy trips? What would we actually do? Do we continue to promote unhealthy trips, um, knowing that now we know what the customers are coming back, or is it that we lean in because we want to be the best travel company for the world and what decisions we make because we've got that data that a customer's coming back and saying, I'm mentally better and I'm physically better. So we haven't answered that one yet. We're still having uh, quite uh, interesting arguments uh, at a leadership level on the pros and cons of that. But that's just some of the ways that we're currently tackling data and how we're trying to use that data for positive impact. But there is always, like everything I suppose, there's the, the, the darker side and we have to combat and have those discussions and have forums and give people the opportunity to raise those issues. It's really interesting. I think d- data is actually making every organisation start to re-ask the question, what business are we in? It reminded me of a story about Qantas. Uh, you're seeing all this long-haul flight stuff going on and, and advice to Qantas that they, uh, and, and you can see them acting on it, that they actually potentially hold a repository of some of the most insightful information around sleep and behaviours and uh, circadian rhythms available. So uh, it's interesting. We've got time for one last question from the audience, if we have one. 
Given that in our school system, everything is digital, uh, reports, comments between parents and teachers, we collect so much data about minors who have not consented to this. Do you have any comments about how we can protect young children from having their information and data violated? I can tell them what we shouldn't be doing, which is putting facial recognition in some oh, schools to yeah. do the, uh, the um, attendance role in the morning and then not being clear on where that data is being used. So I think it's quite alarming to see some of these products emerging that are targeting education system. So not having those things in schools would be a starting point. Yeah, I mean, I sort of think the whole industry of surveillance capitalism has a bit of a problem here because there are plenty of predatory industries that groom children as well. And that includes food and beverages, but it also includes things like gambling, which often... Jewel in the United States, basically. Sorry? Jewel in the United States. Yeah, exactly. So there is regulation around advertising towards children, but it tends to be a bit retro in its design because it, it envisages things like television advertising, so it frames it around time periods, for example. And I think we need to start thinking in a more heavy-handed way how we might approach this task. It's not that long ago that tobacco was advertised in all sorts of very public places and in sporting fields and all sorts of stuff, as well as sponsoring things like artistic uh, endeavours. The tobacco industry was very big at investing in cultural institutions. And that has changed over the time as we've seen that there's been a tide of, of outrage, really, that a company would do this. So I think if you are in an industry that's predatory, you, if you continue to groom children in that way, you may face a similar fate. Uh, and you should be careful about doing that. And I think if it continues to happen, then we will need to impose uh, more stringent regulation that gives people control over their information, uh, that minimises digital involvement in places where children are, that has a default presumption against it. There's all sorts of ways in which you can design laws to protect children and I think we're going to see an increase in them over time. What are you optimistic about? We can clearly see the power of what we've been discussing here, this combination of data and advanced computing. What are you excited about? Where are the opportunities? And I put that to each of you, both from a societal point of view or even a commercial, in particular, for business and commercial opportunity as well. Might start from left to right, Lizzie. Uh, I'm really excited because uh, often when you talk about digital rights, people think about whistleblowers and journalists for good reasons, I think, because I think those are the people who are most vulnerable that need protection. But increasingly, I find as a digital rights activist, many more people are getting involved in this campaign, whether it's things like unions, welfare organisations, other kinds of community organisations who realise that increasingly these issues are data issues, are technology issues that they deal with for their constituents. So I find that really exciting, the idea of a broad-based movement in protection of people's rights to have human rights respected in the digital age. So Brilliant. I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. James? I'm really blown away by the kind of the tech worker um, movement at the moment. I think, you know, there's just been this, this huge kind of outpouring from people working in industries, working at places like Google and Microsoft and saying, you know what, this is not what we came here to do. Mm. And standing up for kind of discrimination in those organisations, you know, standing up when they feel those, their products are being used in the wrong way. And I think this is really important because I think it's one of the best ways to actually drive change because this is a real public problem for the tech industry. It's making it very visible and it's, it's going to really hit them where it hurts and I think they're really going to listen and I'm just blown away by the level of activism and just how, how people have put themselves out there. Wholeheartedly agree with you. Like it or lump it, they are leading us culturally and socially, there's no doubt. Um, yeah, I'm super excited by the movement of businesses in Australia and seeing business can be used as a force for good. 
they're seeing their role as not just creating value for shareholders and putting money in the shareholders' pockets, that their actual role is to create value for their employees, which is empowering them and their employees to stand up, to create value for the planet, to also look at the communities they interact with. Australia and New Zealand is the fastest B Corp market in the world. We know that our companies here are seeing that, yes, they can deliver value beyond just financial value. I'm mean, really excited about that. And I think more organisations that are creating value beyond just the bottom line, we're going to see a hell of a lot more of improvement in some of these areas. And I think the tech is just one part of it. Absolutely awesome. What an amazing panel. Would you please join me in thanking Lizzie, James and Lee. That's it for this episode of The Corporate Innovator. As always, thanks for listening. And if you're loving the episodes, be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.